And good afternoon, everybody. Welcome back to Other Minds and Hands. My name is Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor, uh, and I'm joined, as always, by Maggie Park. Uh, Maggie, we were going to follow up today. Uh, we were we ended last time talking about uh, studios and sort of the question of what kind of an impact does it. You know, we, we were talking about the question of Amazon as a corporate producer, and I was raising it as sort of a an issue or as like an example of um uh, uh applied crit fic right when people keep uh kind of collectivizing the thing right and speaking as if amazon this huge corporate entity is somehow like spontaneously spawning uh out mm -hmm. of a corporate boardroom or something this series and that's of course not the case this is you know, a TV studio that is indeed owned by Amazon. Their bank, you know, the corporation is bankrolling it. Um, but uh, there are actual, you know, artists involved uh, uh, with this and everything. And that, you know, it's it's just uh, at the very least sloppy and kind of avoiding the analysis work. Again, that's kind of the point of Critfic, right? Just to say like, oh, it's going to be bad because Amazon is doing it. Or even to say everything that corporate studios produce is bad. Um, today, you wanted to dig in a little bit more into the question of like, what does it mean? Like, what are we talking about when we're talking about like a big studio versus a, a smaller indie studio? Um, what's even kind of at stake? Because I think a lot of people sort of wave their hands. And honestly, the impression that I get is that a lot of people are making, uh, it sounds like a really simple kind of thing, right? Like Amazon is huge. Huge companies are evil, right? I've heard of evil things that Amazon as a corporation has done in other places. Therefore, like they're huge, they're bad. And the stuff that they produce is probably going to be like bad. I mean, it's, it's it feels like incredibly sloppy. Yeah. And I know I don't have very much understanding of... Um, uh, of how the process works, right? Like what's going on, uh, it, what, what's going on behind the scenes. Yeah. And in particular, the question of like studio control and interference in the process, right? And I'm not going to have a ton of answers. So I'll start with the, that. I mean, it, every single production is totally different, but I think it's worth us looking at like basics of the structure. So you can call this my weekly PSA if you want. This is just right. like let's consider how this works and some things that we should be aware of because I don't want to fall into the trap of crit ficking this either because it's real easy having worked on a bunch of indies to say studios are the devil and then I worked on a couple of studios and you're like oh dang we get a lot done you know it's like <laughs> there's pros and cons to every single system there are pros and cons to every human you work with or encounter like yeah. there's yeah. so many different layers to this but you know if if we just want to look at some basics, I think it's helpful to look at some basics because I think, I don't know, there's a lot of things that I think I felt when I heard that Amazon was doing this. I do have my own frustrations with Amazon as a company, like mm -hmm. ethically and financially, there are some questionable things going on that, mm -hmm. you know, if, if they offered me a show to do something, I think I would question whether I was going to take their money. You know, there are certain right. things that you're like, right. Um, but they are also the ones that are able to get this done. Very few other companies would be able to look at something like the second age and see how little there is about it and be able to say, here's a boatload of money. Let's go get creative. You know, yeah. it just and wouldn't get done. So in terms of opportunities. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, and I, I want to, you know, there's something I feel like uh, in the interest of, uh, you know, truthfulness and honesty, we have to kind of confess here. I haven't heard a single person criticize the Tolkien estate for this. But mm -hmm. honestly, if you hate the fact that a big, huge, major studio is doing this, that's the Tolkien estate's fault. The Tolkien estate started a bidding war on this. They 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 put this out there and said, mm -hmm. we're dangling the rights for this Second Age story, what you got, right? And there was, you know, there were apparently bids from several majors. Oh, guess what? No indie studio was winning that auction, right? I mean, like... Right that situation so like the, the 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 Tolkien estate went they created a situation where only a big huge major very wealthy studio would be able to afford it well and I presume they had the rights literally and figuratively to turn down those that bid for it they could choose who they sold sure. to and sure. they sold to Amazon so you know i I don't think this is a thing that we can control. I think this is a thing that you can be annoyed by if you think Amazon is the devil, but it has happened. So let's just take a look at what could come, you know? So I I also fall into this trap of like, let's just try to focus on the work that's coming because there's so many other things that come into factor that, yeah, anyway, did you, sorry, I forgot to check before. Did you get the slides that I sent over? I did, yeah, slides are up, okay. slides are up. That was good. Oh, good, sorry. So, like, let's let's pop those up just so I can try to keep on track, but have you met yeah, us? Yeah. We don't do that. Um, so I thought it was useful just to, like, look at some of the real basics. I've only got three slides. Um, studio versus indie, I feel like, are just terms that are thrown around a lot, right. and there's not a clear definition of what that means. If you say something is a studio film versus an indie film, that usually just means money and who's doing it and how they work. Okay. There's not a clear definition for any of that. But in like basics, studio has a big pot of money. They don't have to chase around town trying to get funders to get something made. They have the money. Okay. They have the talent. They have the people that are salaried to do things like scout locations and figure out, you know, contracts for how late can we run a generator in that neighborhood? You know, things yeah. like that. Down that's, that's actually, so I, I, have, I have a question about that because I've never yeah. understood this. And by the way, total, I understand if you don't know the answer to every single one I'll of my try. questions, but okay. How many, like of the people who work on a movie for a studio, how many of like this is so one thing I've never understood is like you always hear about like they went out and they got this person to do this movie and they got this other person you know obviously actors right you know they're going out and getting individual actors and they're getting a director and stuff but like where does it sort of like stop like at what point are the people who are working on that movie like the employees the regular employees of that studio like on the actual production i would say not too many are salaried the actual okay. production are going to be the people that are hired to make that film but the people that oversee all the productions are going to be steady so the people that figure out you know like any company the people that figure out your hr your finance you know your mm -hmm. schedules mm -hmm. your contracts your deliveries like all that stuff is probably going to be static and studio salaried Everything else, especially if it is some sort of a craft or skill, is going to be hired specifically for the project. So that would be a freelance person, like a director, a DP, you know, the lighting crew, the film, the green so crew. Even, all yeah, those like lighting crew, the, 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 you know, sound people, the, like all that, like all of those production people are all hired just 
and they might work for another studio, you know, next exactly. year. Exactly. I'm like, what? yes, okay. they're hired in, but it might be like, you know, Industrial Light and Magic is brought in. Well, Industrial Light and Magic has a ton of salaried people. Right. So they right. might be freelance for that project, but they're going to have a load of people that that's just their job. So they're always there anyway. Yeah. So it's not like we're just bringing in that random guy to do the edit because he's right. real they're good. Not, that's more right. indie. Right. Yeah. They're tending to do so they'll tend to hire groups or companies like that, like a lighting group or and a, like a, you know, like a CG group and uh, that kind of thing. In theory, thing. yeah, it would probably be a lot more subsidiary companies or it would be like one person that has their own crew. So like, especially if it's something technical like lighting or sound, like I worked on a short where they got the guy that did the sound for Hurt Locker, which was an Academy Awards nominated thing. So it was short, you know, it was a, a 12 minute film. But because they got that guy, it had a lot of street cred and, you know, helped us get additional funding and he brought his crew with him. So all of a sudden the sound on that short was fantastic, you know? Right. right. So there's like these little appeals that if you can get that guy, he's going to bring his buddies. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Um, what was I saying before that? Um, let's see. We Companies. were talking yeah, you're, you're, we've been talking about salaried versus like bringing people in. Um, oh, just compared to indie. Yeah. So it's, compared to indie, it's yeah. process. And like process kind of goes along with that. So people in process, like I have those bullet points there, but like they're kind of all the same thing. People in process are, I think, the other differentiating elements here. So like when you have a studio film, the people do the process. Whereas in an indie film, the people dictate the process. Hmm. So like if you're working on an indie film and you've got this director and this DP, the way they work is the way you're going to work. Got, can I just ask DP? It, what director of photography. Director of photography. Got it. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. Um, no, no, yeah this, is, this is my job is to ask the ignorant questions because <laughs> I don't know that much about the back end. And I know and I forget that I asked. I mean, my first job, that's all I did was ask those stupid questions like, what does a key grip do? I, what is the best boy? Um, yeah, don't tell uh, me. Don't, don't even tell me what the best boy does, because it's always been one of the things that I've enjoyed imagining when I see the credits. Great. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He's just uh, I'm sure I'm He's sure the reality best. would be much much less interesting than what the th things I've imagined at various points. But anyway, acronym wise, yeah, acronym wise, you're probably just going to hear AD and DP. DP is director of photography, and AD is assistant director. Assistant so those director. are kind, of, yeah, those are kind of the main like acronyms you hear. Um, an assistant director, you'll have like the first AD, the second AD, the third AD, and you work your way up to becoming the D, the the director. Um, <laughs> that would be crude. <laughs> but yeah, I think that's the difference too. That on a studio film, I mean, if you're hired to be uh, the the third AD, you're following Amazon's rules. Like you you will do what is expected of you. You turn in the payroll. You turn in the hours. You you show up when you're contractually expected to do so. Whereas in an indie, if you're the DP it's probably more at the whim of the artist that you're working with. So you kind of figure it out together. And sometimes people don't know what they're doing and they're being a bit more guerrilla filmmaking. And it's just a little less structured or regulated, I guess you could say, but sometimes that's where the creative stuff gets to shine. So, so can I, can I, I want, I want to, I want to ask a little bit more about that. So yeah. um, you're talking about the, when you're talking about the artist with the indie, who, who is that exactly? All Does of it, them? 
tend to so like the artists plural so like meaning like you're working with the actors and the, with the director and with the uh, like and you're kind of figuring those things out whereas whereas so it, yeah there, there isn't anybody so who's in an indie film who's like vision is being pursued usually I mean, because there's is is or is there a, is there a vision? There is. is. It, I mean, yeah. there should be. Should there be. should be. Sometimes oh, there oh, isn't, okay. and they get funding, and you get a bad film. But there should be, and I would say often it's a writer, director, producer, some combination of those three. So okay. if you have a writer producer, maybe it's those guys that then hire the director to get that thing done, or maybe it's a writer director that then finds a producer to get that thing done. But it's somewhere in that triumvirate of power. Okay. That a vision is Writer, created. producer, director. By the way, to ask an even more uh, ignorant question, what exactly does the producer do? Oh, this I've is such a complicated. This, this yeah? is a complicated one too. I mean, this okay. is probably a different presentation. But the producer is the one that gets stuff done. Let's let's just okay. fund it that way. Um, yeah. If you see executive producer, usually that would mean creative control and some money. Um, okay. Straight up producer, I would say, is like the one that gets something done. So okay. I will put all this I mean, together. By, by get something done, people. you mean like boss people around and get people moving in the right direction? Like they're the, the people who are like actually setting up, like handling logistics and stuff like that? Is like maybe that before the shoot, maybe before the shoot begins, but they're probably more like the people that will line up, the people that will do that. So if I'm okay. hired as a line producer to do the casting, I would then, you know, find the casting director, find the office that we can rent for the weekend, uh, call all the casting agencies with the descriptions that we're going to do, send all of that out. It's basically like a glorified secretarial stuff of like, here's all the things that we need. I will okay. facilitate all that happening. So kind of ba Make that back happen. end stuff. Yeah. Organization. And so stuff. when the actual shoot starts, the producers usually just sit there quietly looking very superior and <laughs> judgy to whatever is happening because they okay. won't actually weigh in to what's actually happening okay. unless they need to. So sometimes they have to step in because something is going off script or off, you know, if, if it's very different than what the writers had discussed. Cause sometimes you do get that, like, especially with serial TV, um, you know, you think about like Supergirl or, you know, one of those kind of series where they would hire somebody in to do one episode the director is hired in to direct that episode the way it was written. So it's quite tricky sometimes when that director comes in and has their own opinions of, well, no, I don't want it done that way. I want to do it this way. And then the producer would have to step in and be like, actually, no, <laughs> this is the way we're doing it. Okay. But that's more like serial TV. That's pretty rare that you would have a producer step in in a film. They, they'll get dailies, which is like um, short little versions of the stuff that was filmed that day. So they'll take a look at the dailies and then they'll provide feedback if there's something different. Like, oh, I really didn't like, you know, the angle that you're filming Aragorn. Can we try an upshot so he looks more superior or something like that? Right. right. Okay. But so, it's pretty but rare they are, they are kind of like related to almost like sort of safeguarding that kind of creative vision, or at least that can be a way. It can be. Say. I would yeah. like to say they should be, but I don't okay. know enough producers to say that the ones I've met have been very careful about stepping back from the creative process once it's underway and letting the people do what they do but also being very firm with their opinion and stepping in when they need to so right. i quite like that they're also the ones that tend to line up the money 
So, you know, okay. they have a really good eye on the budget. They understand where things need to be, when and how, and they might not write the contract, but they'll look over the contract, that kind of stuff. Okay. 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 So, and you said sometimes the, uh, the producer can be centrally involved in like the core vision for like an indie film can be like centrally involved in the core vision sometimes. Totally. Um, if it's like a director who, you know, a writer director, uh, writer is normally, uh, like the, I, the vague impression I have is that like the person who writes the screenplay is like that's that my 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 uh, my own stereotyped image of like how an indie film works right is that you've got like person who writes screenplay right and then they convince somebody to give them some degree of funding and then they find people to help to make it work so I always imagine the writer of the screenplay as like the, the but but maybe that's not the case. I hate to keep it, saying it, but it depends, it, you know, depends, right? <laughs> I mean, like in general, I mean, like the, some of the stuff that I've worked on was like, you know, smaller indie type things like film Cymru is one where it's, it's grants that will help smaller, newer talent, um, fund basically. So you could apply for a grant from film Cymru, which is the Welsh film board to like, I'm a writer. I want to write a script but I'm matched up with this producer. So this producer has four credits to their name with BBC. Then basically it means like that producer is, has a stake in what I'm working on. And you're more likely to get the funding if you're partnered with somebody that has right. some street red. Right. So like you'll often see this writer producer combination mm -hmm. all the way from teeny tiny indie, all the way up to Steven Spielberg, you know, like Jerry Bruckheimer, they've worked with the same team with a lot of their projects because they work well together. So you'll see a lot of repeat producer directors and a okay. lot of directors that turn into producers and vice versa because it's a symbiotic relationship. Okay. Okay. So they sometimes often, you'll see executive yeah. producer as well, especially the big name stuff that we're talking about. Right. The like, you know, Suzanne Collins was executive producer on the hunger games. Um, finally, Stephanie Meyer got a, a say in twilight towards the last of the series and was executive producer, but that was a renegotiation, renegotiation of contracts. But basically that just means they're, going to financially put in so they financially get back as well so like i'm sure they had a say because everybody that has that title has a say is, but that doesn't that... necessarily mean they called up the casting agency to right. you know file the paperwork right. actually doing the doing the groundwork or anything so mm -hmm. executive producer then um that so from the outside that sounds like the executive producer is the big boss producer and is in charge of all of the like underling producers who are in charge of all of the sub underling producers. Um, but if you have somebody like, you know, Stephanie Meyer being brought in as an executive producer, she's not being brought in as executive producer because of her vast experience in producing films, right? She's being right. brought in because she wrote the books. Uh, and so it's understandable why you might or might not want to give her creative say, right? And and, and as yeah. you say, she's a she's a she's a stakeholder, you know, for sure, and that makes sense. But it would seem that like she's from the outside. It seems weird, or rather, it seems to challenge my idea of what an executive producer is, right? If she's like, because I mean, obviously, she's not going to be actually like giving orders to the producers yeah. who are doing the work because she doesn't know anything about the work, 
Right. And the executive, I mean, the executive can be the absolute big boss, you know, like definitely the executive producer, Steven Spielberg, he probably is the big boss in a lot of the stuff, especially if it's Amblin Entertainment, which is his own company. Like, right. yeah, you're going to be the CEO, but that doesn't probably mean that you're on the ground. You've probably deputized that, that somebody else is actually going to be at the shoot, but you're still the big boss. So you get the dailies or you get the weekly report or whatever. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, Stephanie Meyer, Suzanne Collins, Probably not. Also because they joined a little bit later on and without that vast experience, I would hope there was some sort of a mediating coaching alongside to be like, here's where we step back. <laughs> and, <laughs> right. right. You know, you, uh, or, or you even like, say, yeah, I mean, but they probably they had have a lot of say. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm imagining like, okay, like just like in like crazy theoretical world, somebody made me an executive producer, right? I know nothing yeah. about like actual shooting and stuff. So I could look at dailies and say, I don't really like this shot of Aragorn, but I wouldn't know how to fix it. I wouldn't know what recommendation yeah. to make. And so again, well, hopefully one would have, uh, so I could say like, no, here's like, I kind of, this is the effect I would want to have for Aragorn here. And that would be better exactly, than the yeah. effect that's here. And then, and and, exactly and then they can figure it out you would have that team to be like, this doesn't feel right. I really want him to feel strong and powerful. And they'd bring in the DP and the lighting guy and the director to like talk through it. But most right. of that actually would have been done well before the shoot. So you right. would have been involved as executive producer, especially if it was your own text much right. earlier on with drafts and storyboarding and things like that. Because right. once it comes to shooting, like the main job is to just shoot what is written. Like right. there's not a lot of room for creative interpretation once the shoot has begun because there's strict schedules to maintain and right. you know, right. you literally every minute the things are so running across yeah. a fortune. So right. yeah. Right. Um, indies, there's a little bit more flexibility because they're not as rigid as that, but studios are going to be big budget, big schedule, we're using the soundstage. The next one's booked in for three days after this one wraps. You know, they're very much boom, 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 boom. Right, right. Okay. So thinking, again, just sort of thinking vaguely here. And I'm just, this is me just trying to, <laughs> I'm sorry, this has become like remedial how films are made class. But, this is, this <laughs> but is it's, great. This will help me a lot as, because I keep hearing, you know, this has been a problem of mine. As I keep hearing people be like, oh, like, did you hear that this person is producing this? And I'm like, not only do I not know what implication that has, I don't even know what that person does. So, like, I don't know. Anyway, okay. So this well, and is you're helpful. still not going to. And, like, also, <laughs> still, still not still going have, to, right? Yeah, I right. still don't have all the answers. Disclaimer. So yeah, yeah, this is still. I definitely right, want to clarify. I don't have all the answers. But I'm just saying, like, the producers, sometimes they are the single person that got that thing done. They got all the money. They lined up all the cast and crew. They were at every day of the shoot. Sometimes the producers just put their name on a line to get a thing made. So I right. think of it, because I also come from academia, I think of it as like, I'm the first author of this paper. Right. But I didn't sure. do anything on it. You know, my PhD students did all of it on it. <laughs> right, <really>. exactly. <laughs> so you're you're a professor and you've got four graduate students working in your lab uh, mm -hmm. and they've done all the work, but it's your article because it was your lab <laughs> and they were under your direction. Yeah. Right, okay. But right. they wouldn't have gotten published without your name on it. So like right. the film wouldn't have gotten made without that person signing off on it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good... Wait, well, sorry, I interrupted you. What were you going to ask? No, I was going to say that that's a good parallel, but we should stop talking about this before I start ranting about the scholarly publication industry. So anyway... The, 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 the There's a reason is, we don't do that. The point is... Um, uh, okay, great. So, so the... Okay, I think I have a better idea of the producer's role, but it would it be fair to say that like the producers in general, like executive and otherwise, right? The producers in general are 
they have a kind of like ownership over like seeing that the movie or the show comes out like it's supposed to right like that's yeah the... i mean i think that's a fair overall again there's always gonna be exceptions and generalizations but like i mean if i said i want to be a producer to me that means project manager to a certain mm-hmm. extent like mm-hmm. you have to be able to see the big picture you have to be able to right. manage people and let them be gifted where they're gifted and reel them in where you can and lift them up you know all these things that are just like very nuanced about management so i don't think people think about it in terms of a business structure you just hear producer and go ooh, but it's actually like no that person's like filling out the spreadsheets and you know making sure the lines line up and sitting quietly during the shoot on their laptop in the back making sure everything's clear and you know, still making sure everybody's happy. And again, not every producer does this, but I do think of them as like a project manager and a good project manager knows what's going on and take care of the story. Yeah. 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 So, so to, to ask the similar question, another way, when you have a film in your, and, and everyone's like, this thing was a complete train wreck, right? Like it's all over the place. And like people, you know, like the, and the, you know, like this, stuff was good but this other stuff and the editing is crap and oh my goodness that means bad job by the producer not all not I always mean, i know there are other people involved in the uh, involved in the badness obviously but um yeah. but again like if the if the producers are the ones who are kind of like in charge of making sure that things kind of come together if it doesn't come yeah. together that's a little at least yeah, I mean, I, I, they should be quality control, but you never know if the producers also have the studio finance behind them saying, well, that's too bad. We have to get this out by Christmas and you can't, I'm thinking Philip Pullman, and you can't reference any of that, that atheist stuff. You got to cut it. And all of a sudden you have to cut 40 minutes of your finished film. Like, right. you, you just don't know who else is at the table. And there's so many voices at the table, especially with a studio film, that I think that's where it sometimes gets this reputation because we don't know who to blame. We don't know right. who we're mad at. It's just these right. faceless people and they seem very money driven. So it's very much Oz wizard behind the curtain saying, do this. Right. And there's always a scapegoat. So like, you know, you could say in editing or, oh, we had to change directors last minute. You know, the Zack Snyder, Joss Whedon example. Did I talk about that? Uh, no. Justice League. I think I just talked about that in Gabriel's class, but <laughs> yeah. Justice League came out. And uh, Zack Snyder was the original director and uh, had to bow out towards the end of it because he lost a child to suicide, which was awful. And of yeah, course he had to awful. be with his family. Yeah. Um, and they brought Joss Whedon in to finish it and everything beautiful about it was cut and really lovely arcs and a lot of people of color and a lot of lines from strong women, like some really questionable stuff that now we know a little bit more about Joss Whedon. We're kind of going, hmm. <laughs> Um, but it ended up being a it very... It is an interesting kind of experiment in that way, right? Right, to kind isn't of it just? See, yeah, like, let's just everybody... change one variable and then see what happens. And then right? see what happens. Yeah, but that's yeah. what I mean. I mean, they just changed the director really far into production. Storyboarding yeah. should have been done, script should have been done, and yet so many things changed. So where was the quality control there? Because should it have been with the studio should it have been with the producers and i i mean this is a personal opinion but i do think dc's kind of always been a little bit too many cooks in the kitchen mm-hmm. whereas marvel has four or five people that know right. the entire arc and they are right. very 
strong you know like the people in the tolkien sets you're not allowed to do this you're not allowed to do that right, they're right, they're quality right. control but i don't know if dc has that that's my speculation anyway so they brought in um they brought Zack snyder back to do his own cut and it was you know two hours longer than any film has ever been <laughs> and, and it was fantastic like all of a sudden you understood the big bad and you understood his motivations and the arcs of the characters made sense and it wasn't a perfect film, but it was so much better. Right. And that was just changing the variable of the director. So I don't know who's always in charge of this quality control. And that was a huge budget film from a major studio. And if they can't control the quality, you know, I mean, that is a really good experiment. You're just changing the director and that's what happened. Yeah. No, that's really interesting. Okay. So, but I've kind of gotten us away in all of my nitpicky questions. What? I've kind of gotten us away from uh, the, the, uh, so we were talking about how, like, you've got the, the initial creative vision for the film or the series, right? In an indie, right? Which might be like a, as you say, it might be a, like a writer producer team, maybe a, a, a you know, writer director team, producer director, you know, whatever. Um, so they they have the, the the central vision, and then they're like they're on a low budget, so they're like finding usually like what individual people rather than like we're not gonna like hire this mega lighting firm. We're gonna like find you know uh, a you know a few lighting folks or whatever. Anyway, okay, so they're like finding the people, and they're and there's nobody else as the boss of them except wait, where, where are they getting their funding from, and does their funding have any say in this process at all? Yes, um, but their funding might be four people at a table you know it, it might right. be a lot smaller and a lot more identifiable um you know the examples i know are the the british film system so it could be like bbc films which is a big corporation or bfi you know film institute like they, they are big companies but they're very very much individuals like i got a grant for a training thing from the bfi so it's this huge british film institute you know i don't know machine right but i'm talking to two people and i know right. these two people so well and they know me really well so i think i feel like each pot of money has a specific human behind it that you work with okay. so i don't know i feel like there's a little bit more of that one-to-one -one that helps control it a little bit okay so then let's talk about studio control and like what kind of because you you mentioned before about like studios dictating the rules and that kind of taking the place of some of this uh initiative so so how so how does a studio film work i mean like okay so, so to give one example let's talk about new line and peter jackson right so i mean there's like everybody or many people i think have heard the story right of how like peter jackson came and pitched uh them and he was afraid to pitch three films and so he was kind of pitching two films for the lord of the rings originally um and then they were like this really should be three films right anyway so that the 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 story like the stories that peter jackson told about that suggest we have like peter jackson has the vision for doing these films like so he has the creative vision and he goes to the studio and says will you fund this like will you make this mm -hmm. so is is, is that kind of normal is that how it normally nope. happens or no that's not normal no, and I mean, I I don't want to critic this either because I don't have inside information about the talks that happened behind closed doors, but we all know the stories. And like, you know, when you hear about studio, it, it's pretty straightforward what you do. It's going to be this many weeks. It's going to be this soundstage. Here's the paperwork. Go forth and do your thing. So for somebody to pitch something differently structured like that, that doesn't necessarily have the massive track record that you would expect. I mean, Peter Jackson didn't have the massive right. track record that you would no. expect for something like this. So to pitch 
three films shot at once with a budget of what was it about 93 million per film so about 270 million total and a world away from hollywood that was the big one that was the one that i was surprised by that they were perfectly happy for him to go to new zealand to shoot this because who shoots in new zealand you know like maybe they could consider london because they have subsidiary offices there or maybe we would consider you know some of these other places where la often goes to shoot on location but new zealand was not in the realm of consideration of normal yeah no i think that's really different and so i think that's another thing where you can say like studios are this way indies are this way but actually it's never that cut and dry because that Mm -hmm. is new line cinema that is a major studio right but here they are doing something that is a little bit different and it's not indie it's not indie right but it's it's a little bit different so and also how does it normally work then does like the studio come up with 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 ideas for the movies that they want to do and then they find the people to do them uh occasionally but it's usually the other way around so like if i'm a producer writer i would go to the studios first to pitch my ideas because then i don't have to shop around for 18 different pots of money i can just go to the studio and they're going to fund my movie um if they turn it down then maybe i go to like a lower grade studio and if they turn it down then maybe i start going to the higher level indies and you just kind of you know work your way through it but if you get to an indie um and you're pitching something that should be a hundred million dollars it's not gonna happen you know i mean Mm -hmm. there are some big budget indies and it's indies are not defined by budget but like when you're talking about this differentiation you often hear about the two and 20 million line which i think i have on one of these slides like i don't know where this came from but i hear about it all the time like two million tends to be the idea for an indie budget oh yeah 20 million and up tends to be like a studio like i guess it's it's easier to find two million than it is to find 20 because if it's 20 then you're going to go to a studio and get one person to give you a big chunk of money but two million is still hard to find like you still are gonna have to crowdsource that from a lot of different places but yeah so budget doesn't necessarily mean budget versus um studio versus indie but it can be a good signifier of like i only have to go to one studio and get a buttload of money (laughs) right okay so uh compare and contrast publishing house movie studio like so publishing house you're an author you've written a book or you want to write a book you send a pitch right to a publisher the, the you know you've got the 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 editors who receive like thousands and thousands of pitches right and so they like read the first chapter of your manuscript and they're like this is awesome we want to publish it let's do this um yeah. or or no right is is there is that i mean is there somebody who works at the studio who's like that i mean is that kind of you know so is is like i've got a screenplay like i have a brilliant movie I'm going to go like pitch it to 20th Century Fox and see what they think. Like, is that? No, no. that's not going to happen. Um, no. Yeah, we've kind of ignored the the concept of agents here. Well, yeah, um, I was ignoring that with the row with the publishing house, too. Yeah. <laughs> but, so, like, yeah. yeah. There's two different paths. So, like, there's production companies and there's agents. So, if okay. I'm a writer and I have an excellent script, uh, I'm either going to go to a production company that has a reputation of making movies with Netflix or Fox or whatever and say to them, I really want Netflix to make this film, here's why, and get them on board because then they would take it. You can't just email Netflix and say, I have a great idea. There's no open calls to go to right. Netflix, you know? Right. So you either have to have a relationship 
excuse me, or have an advocate to build that relationship. So the advocate would be your agent. So if you are a writer or a director um, and you're constantly looking for work, you have an agent. Um, they tend to take, you know, 10% of your income or whatever your fee is yep. and they yep. find you work. So they will help make your script better. Um, so I have a friend that's an agent specifically for writers and she just works with improving these scripts and shopping these scripts around and, yes. you know, going up to studios and, and them saying, we're really looking for a scary movie for, you know, preteen girls to watch at sleepovers. So then, you know, okay, it has to be PG, PG 13. It has to have this kind of leading and you start shopping around and finding what you have. And that's when you go to the agencies. So, but that's the kind of thing that the studio is going to do. The studio decides they don't come up with the idea for the movie. They say, we want a scary movie for teenage girls. That's one option. That's one option. Or, yeah. or they have relationships with people that have always brought them good stuff and say, pitch me your top five ideas. So pretty much like, you know, I think producers would probably constantly have a calendar that's just these meetings with studios and they would go in to pitch an idea. But they are always going to have three or four in their back pocket because you're not going to have one of these meetings where they're not going to say, what else are you working on? You know, right. Right. which I feel like is very like twirl my mustache Hollywood movie, you know, <laughs> what else they got, you know, <laughs> right, but right, right. I think that is how it works. Again, I haven't sat in these rooms, but like, you know, all the, the development conversations I've had has just been like, yep, that's you pitch it until somebody wants to make it. And you always have some backup ideas and you always know how to pitch your movie too. There's like the 30 second elevator pitch, the two minute, I have a little bit more time pitch, the 10 minute presentation pitch and the 20 minute fund my movie pitch. <laughs> right. 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 Okay. Um, so what kind of controls tend to be in place? So when people talk about like the studios interfering and, you know, like the um, people talk as if films made by studios, right, are like these, you know, soulless, empty commercial things compared to like indie films, right? Um, what? What is the, uh, how much reality is behind that? And like, where, do, where, wherein lies the reality behind that? Like what kind of dictates, what kind of controls do studios tend to place on things, on films produced? It could be massive. I mean, if it's an untried director or a young studio exec that's in charge of being on location for that shoot that's trying to prove themselves. I mean, there's so many like individual human factors that right. could affect the controls that are happening and the relationship between those guys and the director and, you know, how overscheduled they are and how far behind they are. There's so many factors that I think can factor into that, that it's like, I'm not sure is the short answer. Um, but I think the idea of somebody being in charge of it and having that overall vision is is something that indie is kind of celebrated for. And okay. you have this artist that has an idea, but there's also a lot of studios that have indie labels. So like, mm -hmm. it's not this like clear, magical, right. artistic thing. Like you have Fox Searchlight, you have Miramax, like you have these big studio indie crossovers it just means mm -hmm. they're smaller budget but they're they're made with the same kind of creative control but when you have a studio that can kind of take a step back and just let them go on and do their own thing a little more laissez-faire go be creative which i think is more amazon style again speculating 
but they seem to find the talent they want to be the showrunners and trust them. I'm sure there's a lot of quality control and there's a lot of reporting back because it's a lot of money. But there does also seem to be this go forth mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. see what happens. I, I don't know what the difference there is because some of the stuff that I've I've heard from some of these big budget studio ones is the detriment is how much money there is. That there's pros and cons to this. When you have a really limited budget, it makes you be creative. Like that's such a cliche line, but like if you have a low budget, you have to be creative. If you have a big budget, you get to be creative. And I don't know there is a certain amount of truth to that that with some of these big studios like you know some of the rumors i've heard about new zealand and what's happening down there is that the amazon people are literally buying property so nobody else can make anything on that property so no other production is happening in new zealand because amazon has bought the property they're not even filming on it they've just bought it it's like they have so much money they're just buying land <laughs> it's just so you can't shoot on it <laughs> That's where I think they might yeah. run into some issues with reputation. Like, ooh. Right. right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and as, <laughs> as somebody who has been operating a very small budget for several years now at yeah. Signum University, I understand what you mean about uh creativity, right? And I certainly do think there are many things that, like we at Signum have done, um, and one, I mean, like, when I think about some of the ways in which we do some things differently from other universities, like there's one obvious reason that we do, and that's that we don't have the money that other universities do. Um, and so we have to do things differently. But a lot of times, and a lot of times that has pushed us to say like, well, okay, since throwing money at this problem and just like, you know, mm-hmm. hiring somebody with lots of credentials to do this job is not an option what do we do instead? Right. And then that's a great stimulus for creativity. And we've, you know, we've been there lots of times. Um, So I can certainly understand how that, uh, uh, how that can work and how, you know, a big budget doesn't necessarily mean, um, uh, doesn't necessarily mean. And it's like so many things where like somebody pitches something and they're so convincing and amazing. You give them that creativity, but then maybe they can't deliver. Maybe they're just really good at pitching. You know, right. so like you're always going to kind of run that. So I would, I would have loved to have seen Peter Jackson's pitch because he must have been incredibly convincing to yes. then also have that freedom alongside that support. Yes. Is pretty big. Yeah. And unique. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, Kat Sass uh, was just saying that. Um, Necessity is the mother of invention. When you can't afford a big, impressive-looking spaceship, uh, you come up with a blue police box uh, and work with that. Uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. I think that's a that's a, it's a wonderful example, Cat. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. It's 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 funny, Cat, right? Because people would, you know, nowadays not think of Doctor Who as like the low-budget indie example, but of course, in the '60s, it absolutely was. I mean, looking at the looking at the the apparent budget uh of like the first 10 seasons of doctor who is pretty funny mm-hmm. um but yeah and, and yeah. same with like with different I mean, we're, we're digressing now but like also when you're talking about adaptations of you know the thing i said at the beginning when you're writing a book you have no concept of budget because it's just your imagination you can do anything you want and the example i always use is neil gaiman's stardust where he created a flying pirate ship with Robert De Niro as, as the effeminate pirate. And he says that he remembers going on set and seeing them building this flying pirate ship and saying, sorry, I could have made it a cart. 
you know? Like, he could have made it a cart, but he made it a flying spaceship, you know? So things you get to do when you have a different budget. Right, right. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, so um, more, th and we, we kind of covered your uh, some of your budget uh, stuff as well, but yeah. this is not to say that like we don't want we don't want to turn it around and say like so the worst thing that can happen to a film is that it has a decent budget right like that that, that is all. also yeah. definitely like, not the case. Okay, here's here's my PSA on budgets. Like I I love budgets. Whenever I give a lecture on film, you will hear me talk about how much a film costs to make and how much it made at the box office because I find it fascinating. Um, and the picture I've got here is just some random Google image uh, example budget, but I love looking down the lines and just seeing what everything is. And, you know, when I was working on Twilight and the, the bit you got back was like how much the mushroom ravioli costs to have on the table for the <laughs> restaurant scene. And just all these things that were just so specific. And I love that level of detail in my very OCD way. Right. Um, but I do think it's huge to just know that budgets are not the be all end all. And there's so many factors that go into them. So, I mean, if you're interested in this, just Google example budgets and you'll see kind of a rundown of, of how budgets are broken down for some of the bigger Hollywood films. And do they put it on here? There's like the four, um, yeah, four categories above, below, post and other. So like above the line, below the line, post-production and other. Above right. the line is like all the talent. That's all the salaries. Right. So if you're above the line costs include uh, Robert Downey Jr. and Jennifer Lawrence and Julia Roberts, like you're talking 20, 30, 40 million for some of these people. Right. So you're above the line cost is going to be massive. <laughs> right. You're below the line cost is going to be your production costs. Like our big Hollywood films of production costs start at like, 45 million 60 million and go up especially including you know all the location rentals and props and costumes and if it's a period film it's going to be way more than that and you know all these things so you've got that and then post is all the editing the cg the music all that stuff and then others like legal stuff um that people always forget about but it's really expensive to do some of these things <laughs> legally so yeah, that's just like the four divisions. So if your talent is massive, the budget's going to be massive. Mm -hmm. um, I just did, again, for Gabriel's class, I just did this bit on the King Arthur Guy Ritchie film. And the budget for that was $175 million. That's insane for a film that crashed massively <laughs> and, and no <laughs> sequel was made. And that's what most of the feedback was. Like this film should have been 60 to $90 million. And then if it made a lot of money, you can throw more money at it for the second one. But for the first one, it should have been, you know, much lower production costs, much lower talent costs. Yeah. But it wasn't. So, yeah, it's just like, and, and I, again, the example I often use is Twilight, where like the budget for the first Twilight film was $37 million. The budget for the second one was $112 million. So, yes, they knew they had an audience, so they put right. more money into it to make it better. But also the fees for those actors went from $1 million to $12 million. So it's just worth being aware of all the factors. Because when somebody says, ooh, 150 million for the new DC, whatever, that doesn't mean anything to me. Like, I can tell they're throwing a lot of money at it. Cool. How many big actors are in it? Where is it being shot? That's going to tell me a little bit more about the craft behind it. Because if it's like filmed in a one room and there's only a cast of six and the budget is that high, what the hell? <laughs> you know? Right. Like, 
Right. Where? What? What are they spending their money on? So, yeah. Is there? Do do you? So when when you're thinking about this and you're looking at this, is there like a a, a sort of ratio you're looking for in a film? Like, uh, is it a red flag, for instance, if you're spending like so? The 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 one that you gave, uh, the example that you gave on the slide is almost 50-50, right? It's 33 million above the line, 38 million below the line, mm-hmm. uh, total of like 70, between 71 and $72 million, right? Um, if you were to see a film that was like, you know, 80% above the line and 20% below the line, that'd be a red flag, or the other way around? Like, is the other way around no, good? I, like, is, is it, is it? No, I mean, but no, but it would be telling. So, I mean, if you didn't okay. tell me what film this was for and you handed me a budget and I could see that 20% was above the line and 80% was below the line. I'm immediately going to think transformers or battleship or something like that. That is like super CG, no big name cast and not a huge focus on story development or script costs. Well, there might be script costs on both of those because they're based on games um, and cartoons. So there might be more of like an IP purchase to get the rights to that. But I mean, if it's like not a big name cast and a huge post-production budget, then that's just gonna tell me it's a whole lot of effects. Like maybe we're in space, but we don't know anybody who's in space. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. You can make some assumptions about the movie based on the budget, but I don't think you can tell if it's good or bad. It's just going to tell you a okay. little bit about how it was put together. Okay. So it isn't necessarily true that like uh, films that spend a lower percentage of their budget <clears throat> below the line are tending to be like, you know, skimping and uh, therefore it's no. Okay. I don't think so. Yeah. Okay. It depends how you do it. I mean, maybe they don't shoot at night. It's a lot cheaper to shoot during the day. Right. Maybe they, I don't know, shelved their historic thing and moved it up to modern day. That's a lot cheaper, too. So there's a lot of different factors that I think can play into that. But a budget would not clarify to me if something was right, wrong, good or bad. Mm -hmm. A budget is just interesting. Isn't that interesting? Especially when I'm comparing loads of things. So like when I I was doing all the PhD research. I was comparing like Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, Twilight, Hunger Games. And the budgets just varied massively, but the box office returns were all pretty similar. You know, okay. so like they made a buttload of money, right. but some of them had to spend a whole lot more right. and some didn't. So just kind of the nuance mm-hmm. of that, I find really interesting, but it's not going to tell me if that film was done well or not. Right, right. Okay. And then marketing is a whole other budget. The marketing's not part of the film budget. So that's not part of this. I, I see a line for publicity, but that's a different thing? or Sometimes it's included just baseline, especially for indies it may be included, but usually that's part of the distribution process. So if you okay. have a distribution company that bought the rights to distribute that film, I then see. they would have a separate budget. So again, King Arthur is fresh in my head, but their marketing budget was $100 million. So the film was 175. Holy the marketing was 100. So they spent million dollars just for marketing. Yeah. Yeah. Whoa. Right. Wow. That like, is amazing. Guys, did you really think that was going to come back? Wow. And think of the above line for that. It couldn't have been that much. Like none of those guys were huge names except Jude Law. And how big is Jude Law? Like. Mm. Anyway, probably not a very significant percentage of 175. But that is interesting when we think about Amazon, because none of these actors are big names. So that's probably but there's a lot of them. There's a lot of them. Yeah. 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 Large cast, but not not as you say, we're not we're not getting together 
the, you know, the, I mean, this is not the Avengers. Yeah, we're not going to see this movie because of the talent. We're going to see this yeah. movie because it's Middle Earth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Okay. Well, uh, so you were thinking about uh, doing a little comparison in some of the time we have left uh, between yeah. Bakshi, New Line, and Amazon, right? Thinking about this kind of trifecta here. What were your sort of initial thoughts about comparing these three film expand? Of course, we haven't seen the one yet, but. I'm like regretting that we did this because it's such a can of worms, isn't it? It kind of is. But, it kind of is. I mean, it's, it's also just really interesting, you know? I mean, I think, I think you could say all three of these are passion projects from the different creators. We don't know a ton about the passion behind the Amazon one. And I think that's part of the problem too. We don't have a person attached to the Amazon one yet. There's no they're Peter trying. Jackson who's the Yeah, the, yeah. The, we don't have actually we don't have Peter Jackson. Like I think they're trying with the showrunners and they're trying to show us that they're fans, but it it doesn't feel organic yet. It doesn't feel valid. Um mm -hmm. and I don't mm -hmm. I don't mean that as in like they need to prove themselves to us, but it it is comforting to a fandom when that person can speak the same language as them and easily reference some of the world that they know so well and we haven't yeah. had that from these guys right right well and it's i mean i think in, in in large part also part of the secrecy in which they've been operating i mean intense secrecy in which they've been operating mm. um it kind of works against them in the, in this way right i mean you know peter jackson was trying to keep things secret especially at the beginning as well um but he was always a kind of front man for the whole mm -hmm. project right um and of course if, if there's one thing that obviously peter jackson did very well it was pitching <laughs> this film right so having him as the kind of front man and center point to i mean it was easier to kind of get to know him and as you say like it's hard for people in the modern world you know in the 21st century even to remember peter jackson's status before the lord of the rings yeah. films i mean he was nobody he had produced right. a handful of like b horror movies uh yep. and that was it uh like nobody almost nobody knew his someone nobody had seen his stuff he had very little respect like that was it was um and so i remember very clearly um the anxiety at the very beginning when this was first talked about um everyone was like oh my Who gosh this is, is going to be a complete disaster um, yeah. You know, this guy, uh, you know, this random horror m movie. I mean, like all of the like, you know, Freddy Krueger well, goes to Mordor. Like it was <laughs> there, there was a lot of anxiety yeah. about that. Um, but he was able he because he was this sort of spokesperson. Right. And his passion for Tolkien was clear, even I think before the films came out um, that and we were able to kind of latch on, you know, people were able to, not everybody was, you know, willing to give well, them the benefit I've, of the doubt, but it improved. And, and I'd be so curious about the, the conversations between like marketing and PR and the studio and Jackson around that, because I want to know if there were conversations because it felt like there weren't. And it mm -hmm. was just Peter Jackson saying, Nope, I'm a really big fan. I mean, he was dressed up like a hobbit in some of the promotion. He was holding the smoking pipe, leaning up against a tree. Right. You know, he was running around set carrying a battered copy of The Lord of the Rings. Like, we saw these things in any right. promo right. or leaked whatever. 
that just helped. And maybe that was purposeful. Maybe they did that to convince us, but it worked. So I don't care. <laughs> you know, there's a yeah. certain level of like just assure the fandom. And I'm not saying that's your role, but it's going to, it's going to help you a lot. If you just yeah. have a quick conversation and acknowledge them and put them at ease, then they're going to spend a buttload of money to come see your film a million times. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, it's a great, that's a great, uh, it's a great that's a great point Nameless Arcanum says um, I think the production team feeling so faceless is adding fuel to the criticism that it's going to be a soulless corporate production um, uh, yes I, I I totally I totally agree and as Aslan's Compass adds in the absence of information people assume the worst right um, so yes yeah I, I agree it's it's I can kind of understand why you know Amazon did what they did secrecy wise um I'm not a big fan of like how draconian apparently they were about this like I kind of feel a little bit like get a grip folks it's you know not actually you know changing the world but um but nevertheless I do think that this is one of the ways in which it's kind of backfired I don't know any reason to think that there is not a commensurate level of Tolkien passion behind this yeah. production. Um, there may very well be. I, I think, you know, the people involved, the actors and the directors and the showrunners and whatever, may be just as knowledgeable, just as passionate as the Peter Jackson folks were. And I mean that both ways, right? Not everybody in the Peter Jackson production, especially the cast, were like, dedicated Tolkien people at the time. I mean, of course, Chris Lee, Christopher Lee gets a lot of credit, you know, because he was, but he's the story because he's unusual in the cast for being like mm -hmm. the lifelong uh, Tolkien geek uh, among them. Um, but anyway, whatever. Well, it may well be that the Amazon people are just as passionate, but we don't know. We don't, yeah. we barely know anything about and who they are. Be, we got introduced to them a little total... bit. Yeah. So good, yeah. And that can be a total strength, too, that you don't have somebody that knows word for word every single thing. Like, you want a few of those people that can help drive the depth and the heart of a story. But if everybody knows everything, then you are just a slave to fidelity. And as we said before, that doesn't always make for a good entertainment. Like, sometimes right. you have to make some changes. So it's right. nice when there's a few people that can help drive the ship, which would be the showrunners, but or the producer, depending I saw that in the in the questions. Yeah, I was just gonna I was gonna yeah. ask that because it's, it's, it's the dumb question I forgot to ask. Yeah, they're pretty much the same thing. Um, showrunner, you hear often in TV shows because there's going to be lots of episodes per season. So if there's okay. like ten episodes per season, the showrunner is going to be in charge of the whole thing. They're like the exact producer. They're overseeing. They're the major project manager. But they might have like multiple directors, multiple writers, you know, working on these different things. So they're just going to be like the umbrella person. And do they tend to, be, is there, um, is it usually true that the showrunners are like um, overseeing like sort of creative control over the whole series or is it, is their oversight more kind of logistical? Um, I'm going to say creative because like, okay. I'm just, I, again, I don't know a ton of showrunners, but the ones that I know were very heavily involved in the vision of the piece. So they were helping with like, art decisions and costuming and lighting. So they're very involved in the creative construction as well as the logistics. Right. 
Because, I mean, it's it's obvious. I mean, one of the things that, you know, you've been saying from the very beginning is just to remember how many cooks are in the, this kitchen in any production of anything. You've got all these people with all these different, you know, tastes and visions and things like that, which is one of the reasons why we've been spending so much time talking about producers and directors and showrunners, because, like, the people who bring these things together and, you know, try to get... If you just let everybody, right, if you let the lighting people do what they think is cool and the sound people do what they think is cool mm-hmm. and then the you know then you're going to get something that just is going off in 10 different directions and has no never kind of, work. Yeah. you know central vision at all so that's why these organizations these project manager people are so important right um okay so the showrunner does tend to be creatively involved is the what's the what's the is the showrunner usually involved in the in the writing or do they, can they be. work with the yeah. writers? They can be? Yeah, I mean, not always. They could be hired on, you know, later on because the studio needs a showrunner to actually make it happen. So it could be. So you've be got a script a and they, they hire in a showrunner? Yeah, but I mean, I guess if you're talking about something that has a fan following, like my my inclination would be get a showrunner that's involved early on because you want them as part of the development process. So right. they understand all the pieces that come together and can see that big picture. Also, that could be fun because if you're talking about something with, Easter eggs, that's the kind of stuff you could plop in a little bit later. So you, you want to have somebody that's part of the whole process. Right. Not always possible, but yeah. I mean, ideally, that's what you would aim for. Right. And that's true. This is another thing that I often forget about is the uh, um, not just the the kind of uh, horizontal complexity of like many different people participating, but like the vertical, like in time complexity, like you've got the one phase of the project and the other. And then and I, I kind of forget about the extent to which many of the people involved in one phase or other of the production process are just like nowhere involved at all in Mm -hmm. the other parts right so like you know you you do your you do your filming right and then like all the like the camera people are done right all the cast is done and now you're bringing in you know this whole new set of people who now are so now you've got this whole other set of team and so yeah so having somebody who has that continuity across all of those things uh really oh yeah there's loads of stories of like you know these super secret sets that only give you the pages that you're shooting that day so you might only have seen four pages of the script and things like that so like you need to have somebody that gets the big picture and then that could just be the big picture of that film like when i was on captain america i remember there was a dude that was there never said a word just kind of creepily hung out in the background but his job <laughs> was to make sure that everything stayed within the marvel world you know like okay. he knew w- there's what he 20... was like the parallel to the tolkien estate person basically yeah exactly yeah. He, like he knew the whole arc of marvel and just made sure things stayed on track okay yeah okay interesting quality interesting. control quality control yeah. yeah and we do know by the way that you know, the Tolkien estate was working with the, I mean, they did have approval rights on the, uh, the Amazon production. This is another thing that I keep wanting to come back to, you know, when people talk about, uh, and again, I, I feel like this is the second time now that I feel like I'm trying to encourage people to be angry at the Tolkien estate. And I'm totally not. Um, but I am a little bit puzzled at like, there's all of this anger and distrust that's mm. all being channeled in Amazon's direction. And it, it's it's like people, the people who are talking about like, oh, they're going to like, Tolkien will be destroyed, you know, by this production. And I'm like, well, well Tolkien the, said it was okay. The Tolkien yeah. estate 
is overseeing this whole thing, right? So yeah. like they've approved this whole yeah. deal. So um, like it's it's you know, and I'm not saying that like everything the Tolkien estate agrees with and approves is awesome. Like that's not true and I you know I might differ from them and, and the, but um but this is not just like you know Amazon has like gone rogue and has stolen Tolkien and is uh is gonna uh is gonna wreck it you know uh wantonly yeah. uh well, or, we, know, still, we still don't know you know right we still don't know right yeah. well and like it started so strong with Amazon too do you remember the first trailer that they put out where they I mean I I used it in film classes where it was like here's how you get your fans this is how you engage with them because it was showing the writer's room with people wearing hobbit slippers and showing us the credentials they had in addition to what they were about to do so it was like so-and-so from stranger things so-and-so from game of thrones so-and-so from what like it was grounding it in all of these well-loved you know tom shippy was part of that original trailer so we knew there was a tolkienist on board like the way they wove that trailer together was purely for fan satisfaction you know yes. it was just to reach out to us to say we got this it's going to be okay right. and that was years ago that was before you know all the speculation all the change of crew and cast and everybody else so they need that now they need one of those things now to just kind of say we got this yeah 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 um yeah yeah, agreed. Which um, which Jackson was so good at, you know, he just, you know, easily. I like, remember the One Ring dot net guys, right? Like, weren't they just crashing set over and over again? And eventually, Peter Jackson was like, "Yeah, yeah." And yeah. Then eventually, Peter Jackson was like, uh, "These are our people. We should probably have a conversation with them." Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. That was the day when they brutal. stopped, uh, when they stopped, like calling the cops on them and began to work with them instead. Yes. yes yeah. One of them ended up being hired as part of the crew, and yeah. That's sort of the story. Like, yeah. Yeah. That's just such an organic, like, fan service, but also just a way for us to realize these guys do care about the story they're making and the people that they're making it for. And Bakshi's really famous for that one of, you know, he ran out of money. He cared so much about the the detail and the artistry that he didn't get to finish. And we don't have that. Like, the only thing I've heard so far is how mean they're being to other productions in New Zealand. <laughs> and that's right. not filling me with comfort. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, so uh, we, we wanted to segue to an open Q&A. We still got about a half an hour uh, to just kind of answer people's questions. Um, we've had so many things to talk about. We didn't get a chance to talk about the trailer until last time. And we've had special guests and, and everything. And I haven't been able to do much of just like taking random questions and addressing like questions and concerns that people have. So uh, we would very much like to do that. And Nameless Arcanum, I'll start with the question you just asked do we know if christopher tolkien had anything at all to do with the process of making this show or was he out of the picture by that point um out of the picture i believe is is pretty clear um i remember um the announcement the the initial announcement of the amazon securing the rights to do a thing on the lord of the rings it's one of those like i remember where i was moments in particular since i was in a very unusual place <laughs> i was i was uh, accompanying my wife to a conference in hawaii so i was in a hotel room in hawaii when i read that news um so it's it's very like flashbulb memory in my mind where i was but uh nameless arcanum one of the things that made it such a salient thing for me it was not just like oh rumor that a new production is coming out that would have been big news uh on its own but edith exactly that 
the t there were two pieces of news that dropped at exactly the same time. As I recall, it was the same day or maybe the day after. And that was Christopher Tolkien is stepping down as the president of the Tolkien estate. Amazon has purchased the rights to do the show. Um, those those announcements were practically simultaneous. Um, and uh, so it was very, very hard for me not to <laughs> speculate on some kind of cause and effect. I'm not sure which was the cause and which the effect exactly, right? Um, but it's certainly the, um, the alignment of those two announcements certainly seemed to me not coincidental. We know that Christopher Tolkien was not um, in support of film adaptations at all. Um, he did not like the Peter Jackson films and he never took that back, right? Um, it was not like, you know, I've said many times things like, I think the Peter Jackson, Lord of the Rings films are brilliant movies. Um, I'm not a huge fan of their adaptation of Tolkien in, in a lot of points. Um, I think they're very good, very successful adaptations, but there are many things that I dislike uh, about the way that they relate themselves to the books. Um, so, you know, years later, I'm able to, you know, make a nice measured statement like that. Christopher Tolkien never took back his statements about how he thought the whole thing was like a bad idea and should not happen, and he would stop it if he could. Um, he couldn't because J.R.R. Tolkien sold the film rights. Um, uh, so again, like you want to point a finger, you have to point the finger straight at J.R.R. Uh, he took the money. He, um, uh, and by the way, do, do you know Tolkien's, people know fa Tolkien's famous line about this, right? When people were offering for the film rights to the Lord of the Rings, he said, I will sell the rights under two, like I, I need one of two things, cash or control. I won't, it won't take a lot of money if I can have artistic control, if I can maintain artistic control over the film, then I'm willing to play ball, right? But if, I, if I'm not allowed to have careful artistic control, then they better pony up a lot of money. That, that's what Tolkien said. And in the end, they ponied up a lot of money, right? Uh, you know, and, uh, and, that, was, and that, that was it. Um, so um, anyway, like it's, uh, um, it is, um, yeah. Christopher Tolkien was not on board he wasn't part of that decision that his dad made. Um, he wasn't, um, he, he just, he's not a fan. He's not a fan of screen adaptations and I'm not bashing him for this. Like, it's fine. Like it's, I totally, I understand. Um, uh, it, Nameless Arcanum says he was probably the, the purest <clears throat> of purists in some ways. Sure. I mean, like we're talking about the guy who dedicated his entire career at like, you know, publishing and protecting the, you know, literary like reputation of his father, right? Mm. Um, so no, he wasn't particularly thrilled about an adaptation whose creative control is going to be in somebody else's hands entirely, you know, like that he could have no influence over uh, necessarily to say like, okay, you know, it's, it's tough. It's tough. And now, 
uh, praise, I agree with you that a lot of things in Tolkien are inherently difficult to translate mm -hmm. into visual mediums. That was, of course, exactly Christopher's argument uh, when he was saying, like, I think that these these books are, are, are singularly ill-suited. I forget his exact phrase. Singularly ill-suited to representation in a visual medium. medium. Um, I don't agree with him entirely, but he's not entirely wrong either. There are a lot of things in Tolkien inherently difficult to translate into visual mediums. Um, praise my my own self I would be tempted to say challenging to translate individual mediums because I think it's possible but hard mm -hmm. um, and I think it's easy to do badly um, like for instance when you decide in order to try to convey what's going on between Gandalf and Saruman when Saruman is on the balcony of Orthanc after the flood uh, you have him chuck a fireball at Gandalf right like that's one, in my opinion, quite clumsy attempt to translate what is a very non-visual thing going on there, the battle of wheels uh, between the two of them. Um, uh, and um, they, they were trying there. Um, I don't think that that was a success. But there are other ways in which you can do things. I mean, there are things that you can do. There are definitely ways. There are some ways in which you can convey non verbal, non-visual, even more powerfully in film than you can in a book. You have to kind of explain it and belabor. You have to say it is happening, right? Whereas you can just kind of make people feel it uh, more viscerally and directly in a film. So, And that's when you're hoping that you have a creative team that has that kind of ability to communicate with each other. Because if you're talking about emotion or depth or something that you feel from words that we're trying to get on screen, then you need to consider the music, which doesn't happen till later, the lighting, which has to be decided before, the performance, which happens in the moment, but that actor might be tired and pissed off and the director has to manage that. You know, there's so many lovely little factors that have to come together that, yeah, they might try something and it fails. And the other thing with Peter Jackson is like so much new technology was used in those special effects and, and uh, images and stuff that mm -hmm. they were just trying stuff out. So if it, didn't work and who knows they might have just been like we have a new toy can we throw a fireball i, I wasn't part of that conversation <laughs> right so right you can try it but we also might throw it away and say nope <laughs> which they did they cut that scene from the uh, from the yeah. cinematic release um yeah yeah um anyway so so no it's it's um I, but but i do think like in my mind those are really fun artistic challenges right but this is yet another reason why it is so important when you are a fan of a book which is being adapted to screen, you absolutely have to be fair. You don't have to like it. Again, we'll keep saying you don't have to like it, but you have to be fair in judging. This is why you can't just be like, they changed that. That's not what it says in the book, you know, and start quoting yeah. word for word and saying, this is how the scene was described in the book and they did it differently in the film, doggone it. Like, um, yep. you have to first... <laughs> Leave the book aside. And this is the hardest thing. Leave the book aside. Watch the scene, right? And say, like, try to understand, what is the scene doing? What's happening in that scene? Then compare that to that, right? Look at what's happening in the book. Look at what's happening in the scene. What are they trying to accomplish? And how are they trying to accomplish that, right? And how successful are they in accomplishing what each... And then compare those things, Right. And that to me is what it what really what it really comes down to when you're trying to evaluate, like, is this true to the work? Mm -hmm. um, it's not about 
the details. It's not about citing, you know, chapter and verse to say they deviated in this in this thing. Um, so it's 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 come, but that's because it's such a different challenge. It is such a different challenge. You I may like have to make. Go, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say I like life as comment here. Different is not equal to bad, and different is not equal to wrong. That's what I say. Yeah to my mom whenever she's talking about something over here in the UK where she's like that's weird I'm like it's not weird it's different (laughs) (laughs) it's just a different way of doing things but it gets you know she said that about our power plugs in the wall because you have to turn them on there's a switch on the the actual power plug where you plug something in and she always forgot about it like it's not weird it's just different but it gets (laughs) the job done so if we're able to do something like that in the film and say yep it's different than the book but hey, it got the job done. Like, yeah. you know, those two examples I did in the beginning were like, yeah, I miss those 50 pages or whatever of, well, I don't really miss those 50 pages of Harry wandering aimlessly through the woods and getting frustrated because no. it was long no. and boring. I've never. But if I can that. accomplish yeah. that in eight seconds of film, great. Perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, it is all about what you're what you're accomplishing. And and again, the, the, the challenge of doing that, it is very possible for you to change a lot of things around very significantly in order to create a very, to try to capture the very same thing that is being captured in the book. So that's why you can't, you can't just be so quick to say it's different, it's different and therefore it's wrong. Um, and sometimes that's a real gift because if they're changing something in order to give me more time somewhere else, I could be incredibly grateful for that. Like, again, mm-hmm. that example I had from Aragon where they cut loads of story just so they could show that CG dragon. That doesn't right. do anything for me. But right. if they cut some of these other elements so I get more time developing a character or a story arc, great. <laughs> right. Great. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, uh, good. So let's see. Um, Another question. Edith says, what about films that basically have nothing left from the book except perhaps a couple characters? Um, well, again, Ooh. at the end of the... So, well, here's my... I have a quick, obvious example of that in my head. How to Train Your Dragon. Do you, do, do, do you know that? Do you know the, the I love the movie. Film? I've never read the book. Okay, so that's the funny thing is that apart from the names of the characters, there's almost no connection between really? the story... And like it's almost it's it's it is to me it is uncanny how different that and and, and th- that one struck me because we had just read How to Train Your Dragon is a hilarious book, um, uh, and we, we Stoic the Vast is one of the best character names I know. Uh, I mean it's just great. Um, we love How to Train Your Dragon. We watched the film, and we were like, huh? Oh. Um, and the thing is, it's not like it was a terrible movie. It was a good movie. I kind yeah. of liked the movie. But we're just like, that, why did you link it to the book? Because almost everything about it was completely different. Um, I mean, and I'm not saying, like, they approached it differently. I mean, like, fundamentally fundamentally like I get it's like the entire plot is turned on its head the characters not yeah. all of the characters are entirely different uh completely but many I mean it's just that I I couldn't even wrap my brain around the kind of departures that they did and I'm just like why you had this interesting idea for, for a movie like 
I just yeah, like the like how and you I, get from point I, A to point B. I don't yeah, understand. And I don't have an answer for that except it had to have been something in the room that happened that somebody got carried away and just ended up running with it and six months later that's the final script. But I, sorry, all my examples are Twilight. This is what I know. But like <laughs> Twilight, one of the first drafts of Twilight, uh, Bella was a track star at Brigham Young University, and Edward was a convict on the run from the FBI. There was no mention of vampire. There was there was nothing. But it was called okay. Twilight, and their names were Bella and Edward. Okay. So like, what happened? And I think that was MTV, which is now defunct. So clearly, somebody made a lot of bad decisions. But right. Sometimes they just take the title of a book in the hopes yeah. it will attract some following and help get it made because it sold X amount of copies. And it's the same as like having that first author or that producer name. It's like whatever gets it made, if somebody in the room has the money and says, wouldn't it be a great idea? Maybe that's how it gets messed up. Right. And help me as a fan that helps me as a creator understand how it happened, but I don't right. feel good about it. I mean, that happened yeah. with Susan Cooper. They they changed all sorts of stuff in My Dark is Rising. How dare they? And I couldn't tell you if the resulting film was good because I couldn't breathe. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting. Now, uh, 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 Leif, uh, Leifasa says, uh, oddly with Game of Thrones, uh, mm. season one feels exactly like book one on the screen, but they deviate so enormously as they go. Now, that's a different situation because, of course, they overtook and passed the series. Right. Um, well, tr and yeah. So True Blood and um, Harry Potter did very similar things, and I feel like that's to secure an audience, and then you can deviate. So, like, once you know you've got your watching audience, and you've got millions of people that are tuning in, and loads of people that are watching it that haven't read the book, and all of them are happy, then you can play around with it. By the third film, doesn't really matter if you follow the right. book or not. Everybody's gonna watch. Right. Yeah. No, life is, I don't just mean, I know that they deviate hugely before the books stop, but the reason I still say it's a different situation is that, um, they, they had a shape in mind, like, like they made decisions about where the overall arc of the story was going. Now I know everybody hates where the story went at the, in the end. Like I get that. I'm not, I'm not judging it. I'm just saying you're making the show. You have to work out the arcs. You have to know where you're going. Um, however, howsoever, they could not just follow every book along and then like, and now we're going to start extemporizing, right? They, they had to, you know, if you've got the beginning in the middle and you don't have the end, you can't like, you have to shape the beginning in the middle towards the end. Like that's kind of how you have to make up the story and they don't know. Uh, what's going on there. So I don't blame them at all for, I would have done exactly the same thing. Like basically I, I, you know, if I were on the, if I had been on the writing team of game of Thrones, a lot of, a lot would have been different, but if I had been on the writing team of the game of Thrones, I'm not saying it would have been better. I'm just saying it would have been different. Um, uh, is I would have said, okay, um, we're definitely going to start, you know, where he starts. Right. But we are going to make up our own minds about where we're going because we're it's, it's, you know, we're not going to have material to be working with there, right? And if we're going to be headed towards that destination, we're going to have to make our own choices about where we're going in the middle. We can't use his middle not knowing what his end is. So for me, I think it's totally um, 
uh, totally justifiable. It's, it's, it's in, in, in any case, it's not the same situation. It's not the same mm. situation as something like How to Train Your Dragon, where they're like, we're doing an adaptation of the book, except it's not. We're not. There's yeah. Vikings and dragons, and that's mostly it, uh, is the only similarity, uh, primarily. Um, so, um, yeah, yeah. Um, but it is, it is strange. So, I mean, I would certainly not consider... Okay, to me, the, the thing that matters most, the thing that matters most more than anything else, is it a good movie? That's always the first question. Is it a good movie? Mm-hmm. Like, again, How to Train Your Dragon. I'm not mad about How to Train Your Dragon. I'm a little disappointed because mm-hmm. I think How to Train Your Dragon is brilliant. Um, but the movie is a good movie. That's fine. Like, it's it exists in its own, like, separate place. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, I could watch the movie and I can read the book. And it's um, I don't consider it a good adaptation. Um I mean, it's like a weird spin-off kind of thing. Yeah. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a like retelling a story that most people hadn't heard. <laughs> but um, this feels like a poorly titled. You know, you could be like from the world of How to Train Your Dragon, perhaps. Like you know, yeah. 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 But I mean, yeah. I also feel like it's important to say you're you're very much allowed to like both the book and the film, even if they're totally different. Even if they're totally this is different. not a competition. This is not right. a death battle. You're allowed to <laughs> right. like both. Right. Yeah. Now, again, I wouldn't call it a good adaptation because, again, like in my opinion, what makes a good adaptation is how it's interacting with the book. Right. Um, you know what? It doesn't mean it has to be. Um, it can be dangerously to dangerously adapt a Tolkien quotation here. And actually, we might want to come back to this and I might want to think about this parallel more. I think it's okay for an adapter to be a lover of the original and not its slave. Um, Mm -hmm. Like Tolkien talks about writing fantasy and being a lover of nature and not its slave. Um, I think that that's okay. Um, But, um, but are there like movies that I would consider bad adaptations? Absolutely. There are bad adaptations. Yeah, because you're also evaluating it that way in terms of a craft. You're not saying it's a good movie or a bad movie. You're saying in terms of like, I hate to use the word fidelity, but if that's what we're talking about, you know, faithfulness to the text, then it's not, you know. And if we're not talking word for word, you could be talking about spirit. And that's like a really difficult thing to, you know, focus in on and define. But in terms of, yeah, I mean, that's craft. That's not media product. That's right. not a good movie. That's a well-crafted process. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, good. Other other questions you guys would like us to talk about? So, I mean, one of the things that we... Um, you know, it would be f- really fun, Maggie, to look at some examples it's kind of hard because not everybody's going to know, you know, the films or the books, you know, for these other examples. It'd be fun to just look at some other examples, like classic examples of like, here's a good adaptation Ooh. and what makes it good as an adaptation. Right. And here's some examples. And what's the definition of good? Of, yeah, exactly. How, mm-hmm. What do we mean when we say it's a good adaptation? You know, um, and mm-hmm. obviously anytime you're saying that's good or that's bad, 
everybody should always know that's a really sloppy thing to say, right? There's always more to be said than those yeah. single words. Uh, but um, but anyway, to you know, look at some examples of what we think are really good adaptations and what makes them good, right? And some uh, things that we think are bad adaptations and what makes them bad. Um, it would be interesting to uh, to to and you know because there there are um, a bunch of examples that come to mind that I'd be really interested to talk about. Um, even and 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 to even look at some ways in which you have uh, good adaptations that change little and good at adaptations that change a lot, mm-hmm. and bad adaptations that change little and bad adaptations that change a lot. Or short stories that made for an incredible film or a video mm-hmm. game that made for an incredible film. You know, there's yeah, yeah. a the, ride, the, you know, pirates. The adaptation into different fun. genres as well mm-hmm. would be really, would be really uh, cool. Um, but um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so I think those would be interesting. One other thing that we've had a request to do, which I think um, we definitely will do, um, is to talk more about some of the Amazon previous Amazon adaptations, especially yeah. the Wheel of Time, which is kind of the most comparable thing to the Rings of Power uh, that we've seen yet out of Amazon. Um, and I'm delighted to talk about that. I'm a big Robert Jordan fan myself. I've been re- reading Robert Jordan since they first started coming out. Um, and uh, um, and then I, as with so many other Robert Jordan fans, despaired. And then he died and Brandon Sanderson took over and I, like, regained hope and love uh so i actually i'm a big uh, i'm actually right now finishing another reread uh through the entire wheel of time series i'm in book 11 right now um uh, in my re- which i started when the wheel of time uh show came out like as soon as it as soon as it was about to come out i started rereading the eye of the world because like i'm gonna reread it before i watch the, sh- the adaptation and then like i started reading it so i you know got to finish rereading yeah. the series and i still go the other way i've never read it i wanted to see it first and then i was going right. to read it so i'm yeah. not familiar with wheel of time i watched it over christmas break and i should probably rewatch it before we talk about it but we're also hoping we can maybe get somebody involved that knows it really well or worked on it or something so yeah definitely something we want to look at just not there yet yeah yeah so we might um uh we might uh, we might do a couple episodes on that. Mm-hmm. Maybe one, you know, where you and I kind of talk about it, you know, talk about the, you know, you can talk about what you see not knowing the book and I can talk about mm-hmm. um, what I see knowing the books. Uh, and then we can, you know, talk to some others who, you know, who know the production or who know, you know, who are kind of part of that world. And to see if more. there's any tie into the production of Lord of the Rings, because it could be there totally separate. It's just the pot of money is Amazon. So, yeah. You know, just because Wheel of Time had pros or cons doesn't mean Rings of Power could have pros or cons, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but it is interesting to look at some of the kinds of uh, uh, Definitely. choices that they made. Um, and I'll give you, I'll give everybody a little spoiler. Um, I kind of liked the Wheel of Time adaptation. I was, I was, I was, a lot of people were upset. I was less upset than most Jordan fans that I saw. Um, and I think for similar kinds of reasons i thought there are some massive adaptation challenges in doing the wheel of time i mean it's a fourteen thousand page series for crying out loud right i mean <laughs> it's long um and i mean the hobbit is challenging to adapt into films people were joking about um 
you know, oh, you're like making it into three films. That's way too much. And I'm like, it's still less than an unabridged reading of the book. I mean, like you still have to compress to get it into three into three films even. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's like it's uh, this is one of the things that I think that a lot of people take for granted is the fact that the literary parallel of the feature film is not the novel. It's the short story. Right. As far as like the pacing of the story and the shape of the narrative and how much you can do and how you develop characters and things, what you can do in a 300 page novel, it's not even fair uh, to try yeah. to do it. So like the, 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 the job of compression that has to happen anytime um, you try to do a feature film on uh, this is one of the reasons why I am so glad. Like the number one thing I've been happiest about from the day they announced the Amazon, the Amazon show was that they were going to do a serial production so that we could get some longer development and not trying to squeeze it into uh into Mm -hmm. films um i've come to dislike the feature film. i'm not a huge fan of the short story as a genre like it's not one of my favorite genres of literature i prefer longer works um and therefore i'm not a big fan of feature films like i i've i mean like as a genre it's not my favorite um give me I'm, you know, I'm very much of the, you know, C.S. Lewis, there's that famous C.S. Lewis quote, right? You know, he never found a, he never found a book long enough or a cup of tea big enough to suit him, right? Uh, that's me. Absolutely. Like I, the, the longer, the better. I like long books. I, I'm, I'm, and this is why I'm, I'm so, I, I'm so interested in Marvel and what Marvel's been doing, the way they've mm. taken the feature film and used it for this like long-term storytelling, I think is a fascinating adaptation of the genre, which I think has been really, really cool. Um, but um, I anyway. love all those things. Yeah. yeah. I, I do love the feature film, especially when it can be tied up in a nice little bowl and it follows a beautiful arc and you have the 30 minute act one, you know, I, I do love that whole structure, but sure. also when it fits into a cinematic universe of 27 films and I get, you know, so many more stories and, you know, if somebody tells me that there's a new book coming out of a series I love, and yeah, bring it on. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's there's pros and cons to all of it. I did want to say to First Fish, yes, I do think we should talk about Good Omens because I loved both good versions omens. of that book and yeah, yeah Good Omens. And mm-hmm. Neil Gaiman has some really good um, comments on adaptation and the process of because he's quite involved in most of his adaptations. So I think that would be a good one to take yeah. a look at too. Yeah. 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 We can talk about Good Omens. Um... Yeah, I watched the I, I I did watch that adaptation as well as as well as reading the book. So, uh, um, yeah, yeah. No, I mean I think these are definitely a lot to talk about. Which of course we're gonna uh, eventually we're going. I'm waiting like now. I I have to admit I'm all like um, um, spooked from like getting nothing from Amazon for a long time and then getting like deluged <laughs> by all that stuff all at once. And now we've got nothing again for a long time. So I'm just like waiting for like the next flood the next thing. <laughs> to happen right so i'm kind of like looking over my shoulder uh twitchily uh as i'm um, uh waiting for that so but you know uh, certainly in the t- you know there's still a bunch of time between now and september and there'll be more to talk about you know more primary material to talk about uh as we as we go through um but um we will we were uh, also asked if we would finish the posters I never so, did get to finish the posters. Yeah, yeah I'm like, yeah. I'm happy to, but we know so much more about those characters now. We it's, don't it's really kind of hard to recreate that moment yeah. in a sense. Yeah, and we can, we can look at them, um, and uh, maybe what we maybe what we'll do is like when 
when some of these other things come up, we can come back to some of the ones that we haven't, that we didn't talk about at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it is really hard after the trailer to recreate that moment of like trying to draw conclusions based then. on what we're seeing. Yeah. Um, that was kind of, um, that was kind of, that was kind of fun. But anyway, yeah. Uh, so we're definitely gonna, we'll definitely talk about Wheel of Time. We'll definitely talk about Good Omens. Um, oh, and Dune. Oof. Yes, we could talk about Dune. Uh, um, well, there's a lot there. <laughs> did a myth garden start with that. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, Amy Sturgis joined us. It was great. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah that was a doozy. There's a great yeah. So the, there's a great panel discussion uh, on Mythgard, uh, uh So if you if you look at the the film club recording, um, which should be on YouTube, you should be able to 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 look at that. Uh, see an awesome panel of folks uh, talking about the Dune adaptations. But yeah, I mean, of course, I'm interested in. Uh, you guys know I'm interested in Dune as well. Um, and uh, uh, we could talk about some of those as examples as well. But um, anyway. Um, oh great! Cat was just attempting, <laughs> attempting if Mubot will permit her to uh, uh, to uh, post a link. Oops! Uh, accidentally hit a key. There Oops. we go. All right. Um, well, as it happens, I've accidentally hit a key, which reminds me that we're at the end of our time. Um, so no, perfect um, Well done. Yeah, excellent. So uh, uh, thanks, folks. We'll come back to questions and stuff next time. I have a series of questions that we're also going to be trying to intersperse in. Um, there's a lot of things I would like to talk about just in the pure, um, you know, more sort of, um, for those of you who have been listening to me for a long time, a sort of riddles in the dark esque kind of series that I would like to do of just like, how are they going to handle, uh, this, you know, to be thinking about some of the categories of things that are going to be really interesting adaptation challenges for them. Um, in thinking about the Second Age material. You know, how are they going to handle uh, the relationship between Eregion and Linden? How are they going to handle Gil- Gilgalad's character? How are they going to handle Goadriel? We've seen a good bit, but not all that much, about what Goadriel is doing. How are they going to handle her character and what she means in Tolkien's world? How are they going to handle Sauron and the villains, right? How are they going to handle the dwarves and the relationship between the dwarves and the elves? How are they going to handle the humans and the hobbits? So um, there's a lot of um, questions like this that I have that I would love to just kind of dig into each of those uh, separately. So we have a lot to talk about. Plus, we're hoping for uh, another uh, guest next week. So turn in for that. We might not necessarily do every other week rigidly uh, with... um, um, uh, special guests, but we are going to be bringing in special guests fairly regularly as well, because it's fun to hear from other folks here as well. So, um, anyway, thanks very much for joining us, everybody. We will see you guys again next week. Um, uh, thanks, Maggie. I really appreciate your patience answering all of my uh, ignorant questions today. That was very helpful. Not ignorant at all, and I love that every answer I gave you was, I don't really... You know, but here's some thoughts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks, everybody. Bye now. See ya.